So we've got a family movie in Dog and a video game adaptation with the star of the biggest movie on the planet still, Tom Holland, plus Mark Wahlberg. You know, it's kind of capturing a lot of heat probably because of Holland, but this is still a, a genre that has had its struggles. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by one of our co-hosts, Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. We're looking at a couple of different topics this week that we're going to be analyzing. Uh, but I guess first thing first, it was a big Super Bowl weekend here in the United States. There was a football game. Russ, I don't think either of us watched any of it, but we did catch up with some of the big trailers that debuted during the big game. Yeah, you know, there were a couple of notable ones. Uh, certainly the biggest, I think, uh, was Nope, which is N-O-P-E. Not that I probably have to spell it because it's the new movie by Jordan <laughs> Peele, uh, about which very little information has had been released prior to the trailer. There was a, an enigmatic poster and a, a, a handful of cast members were known, and that was really it. And, but beyond that, it was like, well, it's the new movie from the guy who wrote and directed Get Out and Us. And at this point, what more do you need to know beyond that? And the trailer looks almost exactly like you would expect for a first trailer from the guy who made those two movies, which is that it's kind of intriguing. It is as enigmatic as the poster, but it is clearly a horror thriller of sorts. It looks like maybe it's an alien invasion movie, but you can't entirely tell that from the trailer. Certainly that's no, the, yeah. the biggest suggestion. Yeah, it's probably Aliens. I'm guessing it might be the ghost of Edward Moybridge coming back to, to get some more sweet horse footage. But we, we really can't tell at this point. I, I was really interested by it as well. Intrigued on what one of these, let's say, trademark high concept horror movies from Jordan Peele could do in the market after two years of kind of living in a, <laughs> in a real life version of one of those movies. It's fantastic to say, you know, I watched Key and Peele for a long time. I love that show. And knowing Jordan Peele as a comedic voice, it was really wonderful to see Get Out arrive and hit really hard. I think Us is is a bizarre but really effective movie. And I really liked the Candyman remake that he produced uh, that Nia DaCosta directed. And he's a guy who clearly has a voice. He clearly has ideas that are rooted in established genre movies. I mean, I, I think with the trailer for Nope, the two movies that people were immediately name dropping were Close Encounters of the Third Kind and M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. And of course, Signs, which in itself is head, heavily indebted to, to Close Encounters and to Spielberg in general. But it's like, that's pretty good company to be in. And if those are the, you know, and the thing is, I think what we've seen from Peel is that he's able to ground his movies in a context of previous films, but it's not like he's copying anybody else. You know, he's he's kind of doing his own thing. So yeah, you know, it was very cool to see this footage. And and uh, as always, it's uh, part of the fun is just seeing people reacting. Uh, and especially since you're maybe not in a theater to get to see it uh, the first time. I will admit, I finally, after two years of not going to a movie theater, I actually went and saw Jackass this weekend. Hey, congratulations. Uh, I know it was very That's exciting. Good. Yeah, between the pandemic, moving states halfway across the country, and having a child, 
Yeah, well, congrats. It was Johnny Knoxville that got you there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, certain types of cinema are just too powerful to ignore. And uh, <laughs> we had a great time. It was wonderful. And we were sitting there and and all of the trailers that played were things where where my wife and I were both like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm into this. And uh, and I was kind of hoping that because we went on Saturday, Saturday night. So I was like, oh, maybe we'll get the the nope trailer here. Maybe somehow Aww. it'll sneak out. <laughs> and of course, th that was not going to happen. But uh, what was the location out of curiosity? Let's give him a shout out. Cinemark. Uh, yeah, the, the Cinemark uh, Merriam location. So just here in Kansas City, not far from us at all. There's a there's an AMC that we almost went to, and my wife was like, "You know what? This is the AMC I went to as a kid all the time, and as a teenager, I want to go somewhere else." <laughs> and so uh, we went to the Cinemark, and it, it was very nice. We had a great experience. Let's round out with these Super Bowl trailers. Uh, nope is coming out from Universal July 22nd. A little bit before that, though, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, I tried to sit through this trailer, Russ. I, I have no idea what's going on. There's an octopus with an eye on it. Um, what's what's the deal here? You know, it's this movie builds on on things that were sort of set in motion in the most recent Spider-Man movie. But more to the point, it it does two things that are that are uh, I think really interesting. One is that it's directed by Sam Raimi, who of course made the the Spider-Man movies that helped kick off this wave of uh, superhero films in general. And then it also seems to feature very briefly the voice of Patrick Stewart, who of course played Professor X in the X-Men movies, which are the other films that helped kick off this slate of current, you know, wave of superhero movies. Marvel, uh, after the, the acquisition of Fox, Marvel once again has the rights to the X-Men movies. We know they're going to do some kind of new X-Men movies somehow, but nobody knew how or when. Uh, and so hearing Patrick Stewart in the Doctor Strange trailer, especially just after we've seen this multiverse thing where previous versions of Peter Parker ended up on the big screen. So now the big question with Doctor Strange is whether or not it's the movie where Marvel is going to begin to introduce its own new version of the X-Men, uh, possibly with a cameo from Patrick Stewart as one of the previous Professor X incarnations. So I think that's a lot of the big conversation about this trailer. Beyond that, it's like, yes, it's a little... Uh, it's very noisy and action heavy. Uh, that octopus thing that you talk to kind of calls back to very classic days of Marvel comics, which is super cool to see. But like, what does that actually mean? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> it's just the thing that looks neat. <laughs> we'll find out when that film comes out on May 6th. And also later down the summer, we got to see the trailer for the new Jurassic World movie, Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, a couple of callbacks there from legacy cast members from the early 1990s iteration of the franchise. Uh, Russ, what was your reaction to this title, now the third one in the Jurassic World trilogy? These movies, I... I think like everybody else who saw it at the time, Jurassic Park had a massive effect on me. It was clearly a tipping point uh, that that fully uh, cemented the shift into digital 
uh, effects, um, despite having a lot of very well done practical stuff in it. But um, the Jurassic World movies are not entirely for me. I like the idea, but I haven't loved these movies overall. Uh, this trailer played kind of like a greatest hits in the sense that, like, I think you're being conservative and saying it had a few callbacks. To me, it seemed like it was entirely callbacks, whether it's the the presence uh, and the reunion of the original cast members, uh, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum, of course, who was already in the Jurassic World movies. And that's very cool. But then there were just a lot of shots that seemed very explicitly designed to harken back to previous movies in the series. And you know what? If that's what this movie is, if we're going to close this thing out with kind of uh, a greatest hits uh, parade uh, of, of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World moments, why not? I think it'll do really well. I think audiences will eat it up. And that's not a bad thing. No, not at all. And that movie is going to be coming out in theaters on June 10th. And on the other end of the spectrum, let's talk about the specialty side, titles that might not buy trailers at the Super Bowl, but are definitely going to be talked about in the coming weeks. Russ, we finally have the Academy Award nominations. They came in last week after we had already recorded the prior week's episode. Uh, some surprises there, some snubs as always. What jumps out at you from this list of nominations? Um, a couple of things. I mean, a, the nominations actually, I think, were more or less what a lot of people expected, certainly for the best picture, best director, and the two top actor races, because they, as always, these nominations were very heavily prefigured by nominations for the Guild Awards. So, mm -hmm. you know, Directors Guild, Producers Guild, SAG, they all nominate titles and, and achievements for their own internal awards. Those people are also members of the Academy, so naturally the Academy Award nominations end up being very similar in a lot of ways. I think the biggest things were Dune getting as many nominations as it did. Mm. Uh, I think it had 11 nominations total, including Best Picture, which was a bit of a surprise. But it was one of those intriguing Academy scenarios where it gets nominated for a lot of individual things, but no acting nods and no best director nod for Denis Veneuve, which was a, a, a certainly a talking point for a lot of people. Beyond that, a lot of the best picture uh, nominations were more or less exactly what you, you know, I think a lot of people expected to see. It was nice to see Drive My Car in there, but things like Licorice Pizza, Power of the Dog, West Side Story, King Richard, uh, Don't Look Up, even Nightmare Alley, all of those were pretty much things that I think anybody would have put pretty safe money on. The other big conversation point, which is a conversation point that comes up every year with Oscar nominations, is that in this case, the biggest movie of the year was Spider-Man No Way Home. And it got, I think, one nomination for visual effects. And it just resurfaced this whole conversation that has been a thing that the Academy has tried to respond to, which is that the movies that do the biggest business are rarely the movies that are also nominated for the biggest Oscars. There was a lot of talk that, you know, No Way Home should have been in the best picture race. And, you know, occasionally it happens. You can talk, you can look back to uh, the sweep by the Oscars of Return of the King, which was, uh, right. you know, clearly right. uh, sort of an answer to. Uh, what Oscars, the, all of the, you know, the two previous Lord of the Rings movies did or did not get. Occasionally a big popular movie does really well at the Oscars, but 
not all the time. And this was one of those, this was one of those more, you know, typical times. Of course, the, uh, the Academy has tried to respond to that. That's why we have 10, you know, a potential slate of 10 uh, Best Picture nominees instead of five. When it was only five, uh, there was a heavy conversation that things were tipped too much towards uh, the art house uh, or the specialty circuit side. And now, you know, it's like you've got Dune in there. Uh, you've got West Side Story in there. You've got, you know, movies from streamers. So it's it's a little more varied. But, you know, I can see the gripes from people who think that a movie like No Way Home should be included as well. Uh, I don't know what to say beyond the Academy votes the way it votes. I think that's an interesting point you raise about the release patterns and just how accessible some of these titles that get nominated for Best Picture end up being for a large portion of the country. Now, in terms of awarding the best films, I have no problem with some of these art house titles dominating the conversation. It makes perfect sense. Also, I think on a personal level, they tend to be the ones we like the most. But from a industry promotion level, which is the other factor that this award show plays in the culture at large, I think it's an issue if you look at this year's list that only three of the nine Best Picture nominees have received a wide release. Dune, West Side Story, and King Richard. That is not a, a, a statement on quality. I think as anyone that, that has listened to this podcast that reads our coverage, they know that we are huge fans of some of these uh, films that have been nominated that haven't gotten a wide release. We've been advocating for these films to get a wider release, and I'm happy whenever they do get more screens. But I don't think people can be surprised when ratings for the Oscars are what they are in recent years when it's dominated by titles that don't make it to the majority of people living not only in this country, but around the world. I think it's an issue in terms of release patterns and the distribution model, as opposed to a problem of what's being nominated. One of the big uh, comments that was widely reported following the Oscar nominations came from Seth Rogen, who was like, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but who basically said, I don't really know why people care about the Oscars. You know, he was, I don't remember, uh, you know, what awards brand, what, what hypothetical awards body he mentioned, but it was something like, you know, I don't follow the auto industry awards. I like cars. Um, <laughs> but you know, nobody would expect me to follow the auto, auto industry awards. If you're in the industry, it matters. But if you're not like, why do you care? And there is an aspect of that with the Oscars. Of course, I think, I think he's deliberately sidestepping around the point that it's all meant to be popular entertainment and that the, that the Oscars at this point are also meant to be part of a popular entertainment package. But that is, uh, you know, that again goes back to the question of what are the Oscars intended to do? You know, are they a trade body awards? Are they intended for people who are working within a craft to highlight other people working within the same craft? Mm -hmm. If so, it makes a lot of sense that the nominations and indeed the awards often go the way they do. But that is something that is kind of at odds with creating big popular entertainment. Right. Um, and the, the two things sometimes sit uneasily side by side, but more often than not, I think they, they simply reveal the ways in which 
they're at odds. And I think related to all of this talk about viewing habits and data collection, what the value of that is, of course, for circuits, we understand that the more data they have about their individual consumers, the easier it's going to be for them to market specific titles and to be able to get them to watch movies they might not know are coming out or they might not know they might be interested in. I think that's a big feature of what AMC has been able to do with their A-list program and really any other major circuit's own subscription plan. But as we talk about AMC, Russ, an interesting development with this circuit that I think we kind of called when we first found out about the Pacific Arclight bankruptcy last year. AMC actually acquiring two additional Pacific Arclight locations, one in San Diego, one in Washington, DC, increasing their acquisitions from that circuit's bankruptcy to six over the last, what, like eight to 10 months? So that's that's a, an interesting step. Russ, you were one of the first people that said that this was likely going to be a move that happened. Some of those locations are among the most profitable in Southern California. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a big move for AMC. It's, uh, I think really the big question was which of the big circuits was going to jump in this direction. Um, I'm not entirely surprised that it's AMC. Uh, and ultimately, I'm just glad to see these houses getting continued life. You know, they're, they're profitable clearly because they serve specific populations. And so it re- would really be a shame to see those theaters go dark Overall, And I definitely think they'll play an important role in the coming years as AMC continues to grow and continues to look at what that national presence is. This M&A marketplace after the pandemic or as we emerge from the pandemic, I think is going to just continue heating up. We're going to see a lot of new concepts being rolled in. One of those concepts that we've just seen expand over the last couple of months, we spoke about it a little bit last week in the episode, is dining. Dine-in cinemas basically permit an exhibitor to be able to get in additional revenue from concessions, from food and beverage, and have to rely a little bit less on that ticket sale. We've seen that with expansions from circuits like Look Cinemas, like Alamo Drafthouse, like Star Cinema Grill. We're seeing it now from another one of the top 10 circuits in the United States, Harkins Theaters out of the Southwest. They are going to be opening two new dine-in concept locations in Arizona in 2022 and 2023, respectively. Uh, An interesting evolution here as Exhibition continues to reconfigure a business model that doesn't rely on studio content as its primary source of revenue. And now we're going to think about uh, this week's uh, new releases. We're going to talk to Sean Robbins, uh, our chief analyst, about those in a few minutes. But let's look at Holdovers playing this weekend. Uh, So uh, Death on the Nile opened last weekend at number one uh, with $12.8 million from 3,200 screens. Daniel, how does that look to you uh, as a number, as a performance for Death on the Nile? You know, I think we were expecting something around the $15 million range, give or take. Of course, it's Super Bowl weekend. That's always going to be a hard draw uh, for audiences. And we saw that reflected in this weekend's numbers, really. The, the top player in the market was a new release like Death on the Nile. 
Second place was Jackass with a little bit more than $8 million. And then in third place, the day and day debut of Marry Me from Universal with an $8 million estimate. So really not a great weekend overall. We really weren't expecting something like that. I think the big question mark is going to be coming in the next couple of days as Uncharted opens from Sony. And uh, as you mentioned, Russ, Sean Robbins will be joining us shortly to discuss his expectations for that title. What I can tell you from last weekend's numbers, uh, the one thing I was very, very happy to see is the expansion of the worst person in the world from Neon, fresh off of its two Oscar nominations. Uh, I believe one for the screen original screenplay. Best original screenplay. And uh, best foreign film. And uh, it went from four screens, a fantastic per screen average, the highest I think of the last three years, expanded to 50 locations this last weekend, and it topped the per screen average in the entire market, beat every single new release, beat every single wide release with $5,212 in its sophomore frame. Great bit of momentum for this specialty title. The worst person in the world is going to expand in the coming weekend and will continue expanding every week. I believe probably as we lead into the Oscars, great news for the specialty market that really needed a boost after the doldrums in January. Yeah, like you, I'm very happy to see that performance. I'm happy to see that expansion and, you know, just the general audience support for that movie. Clearly, you know, the Oscars didn't hurt, but I I wonder if it was just general word of mouth that really has buoyed that movie and and kept it going so strong. That word of mouth, as you mentioned, Russ, I think is something that's been communicated for people in our circle since the film opened in Cannes. When I first started hearing people coming out of screenings with great things to say, I was part of that chorus after the New York Film Festival. It had a Sundance screening, a Sundance digital screening that really helped that press push. And now it's coming to a head with general audiences. Word of mouth still playing a major role in the specialty market in 2022. But let's actually transition to the next weekend's big wide releases, uh, Russ, as we bring Sean Robbins to talk about what's coming up in theaters, including Sony's Uncharted and the MGM United Artists' Dog. As we look ahead to the weekend, we have our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, joining us to give us some insights on the new releases coming out. We've got this weekend Dog from United Artists, and we've also got a video game adaptation that we've been talking about, Uncharted from Sony. Sean, what's it looking like this weekend with uh, these two wide releases? I'd say they counterbalance each other on the market. Yeah, this is President's Day weekend, which has historically been a very good one at the box office. Usually a weekend where we see counter programmers like this. So we've got a family movie in Dog and a video game adaptation with the star of the biggest movie on the planet still, Tom Holland, plus Mark Wahlberg. I think uh, the fact that you know it's kind of capturing a lot of heat probably because of Holland, but this is still a, a genre that has had its struggles over the years mm-hmm. before Sonic and Detective Pikachu, only one movie out of the video game realm had ever opened over $40 million, and that was Tomb Raider in 2001. So this is a tricky genre, and I think probably the starved market and the pent-up demand for this kind of popcorn movie will help it over the holiday. I think Dog is in a little more of an interesting position. It's a family movie, and Channing Tatum should be a big strength. I think comedy has served him well over the years, and there's an element of that to this movie. But it's also still appealing to 
that crowd with a lot of parents and a lot of moms that are still cautious to go back to theaters. And it's a balanced weekend uh, for a holiday weekend here in the middle of February. We've got titles like Jackass probably on the back end of, uh, let's say, relevance in terms of white audiences here. We've got Marry Me, the romantic comedy still in the market. We've got the Liam Neeson action movie Black Light. We've got Death on the Nile, a big ensemble piece. As you mentioned, a family film here and the video game adaptation, it seems like there's enough to see at the multiplex for anyone that wants to enjoy a weekend out at the movies in February. That's true. You know, this has been a building block kind of year because January was just a desert outside of Scream coming out. And we've kind of expected this for a while, like February would bring a few more building blocks and we would get to the Batman eventually in March. This is all of the lead up to that. And this is a good variety. Uh, you know, it's hard to say it's it's anywhere near the the upper echelon of, of past President's Day weekends, but it's it's certainly not a, a bad crop of films when you include all the whole, all of the holdovers, especially because it's coming off of Super Bowl weekend. So you combine a, a deflated frame leading into a holiday frame that will hopefully spur some uh, movie going boost as we get into the back end of, of the month. Well, let's get into Uncharted first. As you mentioned, video game adaptations, they don't have the track record that you'd think they'd have considering just how popular they are with a core demographic in movie going. Uncharted, this is an action adventure, a uh, bit of a comedy in there. As you mentioned, two big male leads with Wahlberg and Holland helming this picture. What are you looking at here? Is is something like Assassin's Creed even a fair uh, comparison point? Or do we have to look at this wholly apart just based on that power of Spider-Man No Way Home? I think somewhere in between. Assassin's Creed was a, a little bit of a different case because it opened during this very crowded winter market, uh, whereas Uncharted is the premier movie. It's the marquee title opening next week. And also, we're still waiting on reviews, so we don't really have a clear idea of what reception will be. I think that could have some sway. So far, we're kind of looking at, I think, comparing this to something like Kingsman and those films, mm. especially the first one, mm -hmm. which also opened over President's Day weekend uh, seven years ago. That that really kind of pegs it around the 25 to 35 million range, which is about where we've really settled in at in the long range forecasts uh, to begin this year. I don't think we'll deviate that much by the time we get to this weekend. But of course, check out our weekend forecast and you'll see if, if I'm completely uh, wrong on that. <laughs> and that weekend forecast is going to be available at boxofficepro.com where you can find the latest insights and updates to our box office analysis. Sean, we've got one more title on the calendar. We mentioned it. It's a family movie. There's a dog in it. There's Channing Tatum in it. I like both. <laughs> Those, I don't want to call Channing Tatum a thing. I wouldn't objectify Channing Tatum that way. But if I did, um, I'm not sure I wouldn't be the first one. But let's let's get started with Dog. What are your expectations for this one uh, over the weekend? I think this one, again, we kind of mentioned the fact that families and parents are, are still one of those audiences that aren't coming back en masse. That will apply here. This is this is a an original film. I think it's been marketed fairly well. But it's probably the movie that's going to play longer than it is open to any kind of big numbers. The range on this is much wider for all of those reasons, for all of the pandemic reasons. Tracking is is just not what it used to be for this kind of movie, for this genre. And there haven't even been that many movies from this genre to release. But we've also seen a number of dog movies before the pandemic. They proliferated the box office for a couple of years. 
maybe that kind of creates some some oversaturation. I don't think that's going to matter when you have the comedic and Channing Tatum elements in, in play here. But anything between a, a $5 million opening to maybe low teens would be believable. Again, that's a wide range. That's where we've been putting it at. I, I think that's that would be a really good start for this kind of movie too. And as we mentioned, Sean's weekend forecast can be found on boxofficepro.com. And thanks again to Sean Robbins for that insight. And Russ, thanks again to you for joining us once again here on the podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro, Box Office Studios, and the Box Office Company in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast. New episodes come out every Thursday, so don't forget to rate, subscribe, like, and share if you like what you're listening to. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.